welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story. Together, we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature Mitch Holder. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Perry and Will, it's great to see you guys. Here we are, episode number 34 of the High Action Podcast with the great Mitch Holder. And this was pretty fun, Will. I mean, for you and I, you know, here we are in L.A. And during normal times, when we go to Guitar Night and these kinds of events, we're around a lot of these guys. And it's it was just kind of fun to sort of pick away with Mitch a little bit about his career. Uh, what was something that you really enjoyed talking to him about? I enjoyed hearing him talk about how useful tellies were in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Those were like his one-stop shop for studio guitar stuff. Um, it makes me kind of want to get a Telecaster, which is the last thing I need to do right now. I'm happy <laughs> with my Strat, but uh, that, that stood out to me. And of course, him talking about acoustic rhythm playing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's again, it's pretty amazing. All these guys that we're interviewing and people across a wide style of genre of guitar playing, everyone's talking about how important rhythm guitar playing has been to their growth. And, you know, Perry, this concept of the industrial guitarist, which was a quote that he got from Howard Roberts, where they talked about just being guys that would go into a session, as Howard said, with the plank, his Telecaster, and just be someone to play these parts. I mean, I'm curious, man, as someone who's doing so much creative music, what's something that recently you felt like you've been sort of in that role as an industrial guitarist, where maybe you're just recording tracks for people right um well that is really something that's kind of unique to an era of uh time in los angeles where that was happening quite a bit as mitch was talking about you know the sometimes up to five sessions that he'd end up doing a day Uh, and so in terms of my own experience it has not quite been like that even when i lived in la i did some studio work i remember doing some stuff for movies and things but it was always more specialized for like something that had to do with jazz, you know? Mm-hmm. In terms of being out in New York and being sort of more of an industrial guitar player, I guess another way to describe that is like you're a working musician, you know? You're like a jobbing cat. And um, there's been certain gigs, whether it's like playing a wedding gig or playing at restaurants or fancy events or things like that that you kind of have to do uh, to make a living, which is what guys like Mitch and Howard Roberts, um, these guys, Tim May, these guys were doing because they were trying to make a living. And so sometimes I think what we're getting at is being a guitarist isn't just about, you know, being an artist all the time. It's not just about like having the pinnacle of your creativity uh, all the time. It's, it's about making a living, you know, and it's about working and it's about kind of being behind the c- scenes sometimes. And that's certainly been a big part of my experience in New York. Uh, Teaching has been a big part of that, too. And so 
I think that all kind of goes into the industry of being a guitar player. That's right. And I think one thing we learn when we become professional musicians is there's this element where we have to serve people, whether we're serving other musicians or we're serving clients for their wedding or we're serving a producer so that he has excellent tracks to pitch to a label or an artist. So there's a, there's a wide range of ways as musicians that we help people or serve people kind of in a, you know, in, in a just working as you put it jobbing that's a that's an east coast term we don't hear much on the west coast jobbing you know jobbing i mean we're in the service industry you Mm -hmm. know like Mm -hmm. uh and when you're performing you're in the show business industry you know what i mean so at the end of the day uh there's money involved so so true a certain way so true and you know will you've also made a really great point throughout the pandemic expressed how much you've learned about building your home studio and recording at home and working on recording projects that way too i mean are you finding that connecting to guys like mitch and lee rittenauer and these guys that are kind of of the old guard it kind of shows us like wow you know as la guys we need to be able to do a lot of what they were doing at the major studios like united and all these places right here in our home. Yeah, I think the one big difference that I would say between the time they were in and the time we're in is they would bring their equipment to a professional studio and just focus on playing. They're not focused on hitting record. They're not focused on splicing two things together. And that, I'm sure you agree, John, That's that can be a big hang up when you're trying to just get something done very much but yeah. you also have more control over like oh what how should i should i roll some of the bass off of that or i think having a little more time alone without without the clock running you know when when time is money actually allows you to get a little more of a full experience out of it when you're recording at home oh I've yeah certainly found that well and you know the the trickiest thing i've found and i'm sure you guys have experienced this too you go on the road you play your music you play um, in a more creative, original headspace. Uh, and then you come back and you have to like play other, like go record something and sight read something really well or play other people's music. Um, I mean, I guess teachings even in that way too. It's like, it's such a mind shift. And I, I think a lot of people who aren't professional musicians don't understand that. They just think that we're just playing guitar all the time. And, wow. you know, it's just not different. It's so different and, and it's different muscles. And what, you know, talking to Mitch, some of these other session guys that we've interviewed, it's like the importance of sight reading, the importance of understanding what producers want. Um, it's just a big part of their job. And, you know, we are all having different careers than that generation because it's, it's all about just totally being self-made these days and self self entrepreneur, shall you say, but nevertheless, great interview. Mitch had a lot to say. So we're stoked for you guys to get to check it out. And a couple other items of note here. We've got a really strong following on Patreon. We're up to 16. We're trying to get to 25 subscribers on there. And the Patreon, again, being our main source right now for us with the High Action Podcast to get the word out and show you guys some exclusive content. And we're doing some playing on there individually and discussing some of the New West music. There's going to be some featured video content coming up soon once we get to our subscriber goal. So be sure to hit us up, patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. Without further ado, let's check out episode 34 of the High Action Podcast with Mitch Holder.
Thanks for joining us for High Action, Mitch. It means a lot to come pleasure. and hang out My with pleasure. us. My pleasure. Yeah. And by the way, I, I, I prefer High Action to, <laughs> hey. to Low Action. <laughs> that makes one of us. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm speaking about jazz guitars, you know, not like Tellys or Strats yeah. or 335s and all that. But yeah. anyone that plays my guitar goes, oh, the action's kind of high. Everybody, you know, I go, hey, man, man or, man or wimp, you know? Come yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> get him down. Look at Freddie Green. Yeah, man. Hey. I know. Every, yeah. It's just, <laughs> as I get older, the grit of being a musician builds up and the action gets just higher. I don't know if it's because the humidity changes these guitars and makes them shrink. And But yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm with you, Mitch. The higher, the better when it comes to that. And it is funny because we love asking our guests that is kind of our little hook. Mm. So we'll be sure to <laughs> include, <laughs> include that. So I'll piss off some more people. Hi, action. What's the matter with him? Exactly. <laughs> as if we don't isolate ourselves enough as jazz guitarists and, you know, the elite trained session guys, right. you know, the, 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 the guys at NAM that just hang out at like the little coffee booths in hall e you know it's like that's you know that's our style man but um well you know mitch again thanks for being here and and maybe to get started a little bit um we we always love learning about our guests backgrounds and i knew you grew up in palos verdes right or torrance in that area in the south bay i grew up in west la i, I grew up in uh Cheviot hills which was near well, Pico Boulevard and where Fox is yeah. over there in the golf course. Yep. Going behind the golf course, that's Chevy Hills back there. So uh, I grew up there and, uh, you know, in the 50s. Wow. And um, growing up in L.A., that, that whole scene back there was so phenomenal as a kid. And how different was it? Well, I'll, I'll sum it up. Mm -hmm. When we used to go on walks, and my family was my uh, sister. I have an older sister, and my parents. We go, we go on walks. You know, take our dog. And when we, this is this is right in the heart of West LA. We left the doors unlocked to the house, and we walked. You know, wherever we walked, and and came back, and didn't even think twice about it. That's funny. No, it's funny. Growing up in L.A. then, you know, and like it was even smaller than it is now, of course. And the communities were kind of separated different. Like Private 10 Freeway was just about ready to come in at that point over there. Right. And and so um, there was just like from Cheviot Hills over to Culver City, there wasn't really like a division. And, um, you know, there's some other good guitar players from Cheviot Hills. Our good buddy Brian Green grew up over there off of Motor and uh, Montemar Place, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, and you know, I was reading too. So your father gave you some recordings early on and hipped you to, to Segovia and these kinds of guys too. And so was, was he a, a trained musician or just a music appreciator? He, he played piano. My mother was a professional concert piano player. Mm -hmm. and, and when she was young, she played on the radio. She was, mm -hmm. she was, she was building up a career. But in those days, you know, when, when a woman, Met met somebody and got married. They, their career was done. They stayed mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. That was the way that was. So, I never heard my mom play piano. Wow! But, but when I was in college, the piano, and I was I was playing one day, and she walks in, and she said, 
no, no, your hand position like this. <laughs> and her hand went down. I went, okay, wow. Yeah. I knew. But I never heard her play. She never played. She yeah. didn't even play that spinet when I, when I was. So wow. my father, he played piano, but he was, he was a doctor after he graduated med school. You know, being a doctor back then was full time. We couldn't go on any vacations. I was going with him at night on house calls and he'd make hospital rounds and I'd wait wow. in the car, all that. So, um, but wow. he, he appreciated music and he was pun intended instrumental in exposing me to some pretty powerful characters. Yeah. Including Segovia who we went, he took me to two concerts with Segovia. And I mean, it was amazing. I was like, yeah. oh, he was absolutely amazing. And then he'd bring me a, a Sabicus record, Flamenco. Mm -hmm. He brought me a Chet Atkins, Mr. Guitar. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is going on here? Right. You know, right. then, he, then he brings me a Howard Roberts record. And that was changed everything game yeah. over yeah, yeah. Did, when you saw segovia was it down like at dorothy chandler pavilion and he was using no amplification at all just you had to just hear him in the concert hall there was no amplification he, it was at the wheel turn which <laughs> which at the time i think it was called something else but it was it wow. was where the wheel turn is yeah. is now i if it if it survives the pandemic i'm not sure about right. that but yeah it was the wheel turn and and the acoustics in there by the way because mostly you know when you hear electronic bands you're not really hearing the true acoustics of any room yeah. you're hearing it from a different perspective but from that perspective one musician acoustic guitar classical guitar playing a solo concert no amplification was heavenly the sound was just amazing wow yeah yeah yeah, I've heard a lot of stories. Um, my teacher, I'm from Oregon, my teacher up there saw Segovia at Portland Civic Auditorium, and he said he had to move up 30 rows just to hear him because the acoustics were so bad in there. And oh, Sego Segovia's up there playing entirely acoustic on this stage. You know, and well, they should have given him a Les Paul so he yeah. could turn it up. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Segovia would say about his grandson, who's a rock guitar player these days? You oh, know? you know, my gosh. No, it's it's uh, bleeped. Yeah. it would be bleeped. It would be bleeped. Yeah. But man, that's that's awesome. And then um, getting to meet Howard must have been quite a trip because when we we had Lee as a guest on the on the mm -hmm. podcast, mm -hmm. Lee talked about his dad. You know, just looking up. Joe Pass in the phone book, calling yeah. him and saying, hey, you know, my son wants to take some lessons from you. And he drove up to Chatsworth or wherever Joe was living. Right. And um, Howard, you know, such a interesting guy, man, like a showman, too. You know, I mean, he had a signature, several signature guitars and his sunglasses and his hat and how he played. And so by the time you met him, I assume you were kind of a teenager and you kind of got the jazz bug at that point and you were playing a hollow body, kind of trying to go in that direction a little bit. I was I was a staunch bebopper at that point when I met him. How old was I? I was um, I was still in high school, mm -hmm. senior year in high school, and uh, what happened was my father being he was a doctor. I, I mentioned he was a doctor. He had a patient who was besides a patient was a good friend of his, Marvin Lamonic. Marvin Lamonic was a studio violin player. Mm -hmm. And Marvin 
and I worked with Marvin late, you know, when I started, I worked with Marvin a lot. And then his son, Peter, who was a percussionist leader. Uh, anyway, um, so Marvin, Marvin told my dad, he said, you know, I, I work with this uh, guitarist all the time in the studio and he's given lessons and I think you should get Mitch with him. And uh, my dad, well, who's that? And Howard Robertson. Of course, my dad didn't know who that was. What did he do? He goes out and buys an album and brings it home. That's what he would do. Yeah. He'd bring me an album, say, here, listen to this. He wouldn't try to talk me into anything. Listen to this. And what happened? I got hooked. I got hooked on everything he brought home, yeah. which, which helped me develop, I have to say, an interest in all kinds of forms of music that I wasn't aware of until then. Right. So I think, I think that's something that, you know, a lot of parents try to do now. I don't. I think the kids are kind of resistant to it. There's so much available now, and their their ears get so enamored with everything they get to listen to that try to get them to listen to anything else is kind of a uphill battle. Oh yeah, know? and and the '60s, man. I mean, what a time to be a teenager. My God, like this, the greatest part. I mean greatest time in the 20th century to like be with current music in a lot of ways and i'm curious what kind of guitar were you playing what was your first real serious guitar you got at that time um well the first the first serious guy i, I had a harmony uh-huh. was first and then then my dad bought me uh es 125t a thin one with no cutaway with a p90 uh-huh. and i had that for a while and he was very wise to tell me, if you want another guitar, you're going to have to buy it and pay for it. Yeah. And I, I went, okay. And I started washing cars. Because shortly, you know, yeah. you know what I know? And I really noticed how the quality, even of a low-end Gibson, was so much higher than that Harmony. Oh, I, yeah. I, I learned enough to say, hmm, boy, I, I get it. Yeah. The integrity and, boy, this plays better and sounds better. So then, so then I sent away. In those days, I'd see Gibson ads in the. Um, I don't know what I was. I was probably reading Downbeat at, back right. then, right. and uh, there were some Gibson ads in there. And it said at the bottom, I said, "Well, you know, I I, I should get a Gibson catalog." And I I saw the ads that there was no address. It said Gibson Incorporated, Kalamazoo, Michigan. So I said, "Well, maybe that'll do it." So I, I wrote on the on the envelope, Gibson Incorporated, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Send me a catalog, <laughs> which I did. I at that time, so I got I got the 125 in a, probably about 1959, Ooh. and it was a 59. It was brand new. Wow. So um, when I got the catalog, here comes this orange covered catalog, and Herb Ellis is on the cover in a drawing, and. I mean, it's like 48 pages or something, and there's all this, all these instruments in there. There's, oh, well, here's here's the one I have now, but God, look at this. And then they got thin bodies, so they had all the 335s and 45s and all that. And then they, oh, and the Birdland and the ES350T, Barney Kessel was in there, who was my hero, my first hero. There was his guitar in there. And I'm like, oh, look at this. They got acoustics, steel string acoustics, and mandolins, and nylon strings. I went, this is, how can they build all this stuff? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So uh, I saw the 335, and 
I thought it would it, with the two pick. I wanted to get two pickups, so I I washed cars and I bought a '61 dot neck, brand new, off the wall, three thirty five. Wow, Whew. that was that was my first really pro level right guitar. Do you still have it? Yeah, I knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna ask me that. <laughs> uh, no. Oh. You know, in those days, in those days. It was one guitar at a time. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was young. Yeah, right. It was one one guitar at a time. So when I got the three, when I got, I got an ES-175. Mm -hmm. A 64. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I, I love, I love that body shape. Yeah. That's my favorite body shape to this day. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. I can argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> So I got the 175 and I sold the 335 and and the guy that owns it now contacted me and sent me a picture of it and the one thing I didn't know what this number meant I was in my mind all these years 44864 it's in my mind I go what is that what's 44864 he sent me a picture of the label and it was a serial number of my red 335 and I went Oh, that's what that was. All these years. Wow. Ask me, ask me my name now, you know. Yeah. And nobody, I remember that. And nobody put a Floyd Rose on it or painted it purple <laughs> or, you know, did something crazy to it. Because those Gibsons, some of them got heavily modified, sadly. You know, 61 yeah. is, is worth a fortune now, for sure. Um, but, yeah, that's... Uh, so that's fascinating, man. And, and, like, kind of being fascinated with the guitar and, like, the Gibson. I'm the same way, man. I got bitten by the Gibson bug in high school. I saw kind of before the internet i saw a couple albums of wes and kenny burrell on midnight blue holding that l5 mm -hmm. and yeah. i was like that is the guitar i am gonna buy someday having no idea how much it cost i knew it cost a lot of money um but it kind of dictated the music i listened to because i looked at that point was going into cd stores and looking for guys playing those kinds of guitars and stuff so d you must have at this point also been able to network with other kids your age that were interested in jazz and did that were you getting around and playing tunes and sitting in at that point after starting to study with howard a little bit and learning the language and and playing jazz yeah well when i got with howard i was already playing with um i was already doing casuals and I was I was in the air of casuals before they expected the guitar player to sing too, <laughs> which eventually that happened, and then nobody call hardly called me for casuals anymore. So they're, they're going twice as much for for your money, right? Oh, he sings too. We'll pay him the same money, and he'll play guitar and sing. Great. <laughs> so, um, but the thing with Howard, I have to tell you, my introduction to Howard was and it's un unlike anybody else i think on the planet as far as starting to study with somebody he so the, the the way it went was like this my dad my dad brings home whatever's fair cap one of the capital albums it just come out mm -hmm. first tune on it is um shadow of your smile and i was i was learning the shadow of your smile that very week as a ballad everybody played it as a ballad and i put that needle down and howard starts playing it as a medium swing i don't know if you've heard yeah. that album and and the sound of his guitar i went wow the, the, he sounds totally unlike he's got this big fat sound that's got this point to it and this presence to it that i don't hear from other jazz players mm -hmm. that 
piqued my interest. This episode of High Action is brought to you by Jeff Traugott Guitars. Jeff Traugott is an amazing luthier. He's based in Santa Cruz, California. New West has a long history with Jeff. We've performed on his instruments for almost 15 years now, in particular models like the R and the BK. Jeff's instruments are amongst the finest in the world for flat-top acoustic guitars. Uh, Chris Martin of Martin Guitars says, Builders like Jeff have helped raise the standards of our craft to the highest levels ever. So for more information on how you can find one of his instruments or to check out his current offerings, visit TraugottGuitars.com. Anyway, so um, my dad comes in, you know, an hour or two later, and he said, so what do you think? And I said, oh, man, I said, this guy's fantastic. And then he says, how would you like to study with him? And I was like, what'd you say? You know. So anyway, so so my dad calls Marv up. Marv talked to Howard. Howard Howard tells Marv, "Have Mitch meet me at Universal at uh, uh, one forty-five in front of the gate." Universal, okay. So so I go to the lot. I go. I don't. I don't know where anything is. And well, there's the gate. So I park. I'm st- I'm I'm standing in front of the gate, and then then I'm saying, "How how am I going to know?" It's Howard, you know, but he he said he settled that. Here comes this little red Porsche. Oh yeah, drives up. The door flies open, and I can see because I, I I had seen his pictures in the Gibson catalog and on his album. It's, he says, "Hop in, <laughs> you're Mitch, yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you." So we drive into into Universal Studios, driving through the lot, and I'm looking around, going, "Oh my God, this is how did I get here?" Yeah, we're supposed to be doing a guitar lesson, and we're at Universal. <laughs> we he took me to a TV show they were they were scoring every week. TV TV shows would be scored every week, mm-hmm. you know, usually on the same day of the week. I used to do Dukes of Hazard. It was Friday at Warner's at such and such a time every week. So this was a show called Run for Your Life from the 60s. This was 1966, by the way. And uh, so, you know, there was a band. Pete Rugolo was the composer who was really good. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm -hmm. Really, he really good. And uh, it's probably about a 35-piece band with the rhythm section, horns and strings and the rhythms I was interested in the rhythm section was Howard Barney Kessel so Barney Kessel was probably guitar one and Howard was guitar two because Pete Rugolo as I found out used Barney first and then when when Howard hit town he started using Howard but I think at this point you know Barney would it and there was a there was a, a precedent with us guys, with the studio players, that you didn't you didn't up upstep or upstage anybody, right. you know. If it if it was me and Tedesco, there's no 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 Tedesco's playing book one. That's it, yeah. right? I'd be book two. If there was four of us. I'd be book four. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, anyway, so Howard was there. Barney was there. Barney wouldn't talk to me because I I had a feeling he didn't like the fact that I had come with Howard. So he. <laughs> We got to be friends later, but but anyway, 
<laughs> Shelly Mann was playing drums. Wow. Um, Joe Mondragon, who I don't know if you know that name, but he was a very, very busy studio bass player, mainly on Upright. Mm-hmm. He was there. And Artie Kane, who Howard told me, he was on piano. He became a composer, too, uh, later. Howard told me Artie Kane can read, sight read anything. Wow. So, boy, that was, I, I went, wow. You know, that that's, to, to have that notoriety is like amazing, you know. Nice. So anyway, so that was my introduction. I didn't know what studio work I, was. I didn't know anything about it. So subsequently... Uh, we after that that was my first time we, that's all we did we went to universal i sat in through that whole session right. like this going wow and then we got in his car drove off the lot and he dropped me off and he says call me call me and i'll see you when we can get together and you'll come to my house yeah wow. so then i started going to his house he had his he had i think he had the first converted garage into a music room that i ever saw in a house and uh boy that's where that's where we hung out we get we go in there and his lessons could last you know you you think of half hour lessons hour lessons his lessons could go three hours wow and he just stick with whatever it was he was talking about i have one little story one time when we were talking about notation and and you know in those days it's not like today with sibelius and um all of that um paper and pencil and he he wanted me to write something i was writing and he says we need we need to get something for you because uh this will this is something you have to have to have and i said let's go and i said howard where are we going he said don't ask let's just we get in the car we're gonna go it's a very short trip so this was, he lived right off of um, Witsit and near Magnolia in that area. Yeah. A street called Wilkinson was right off Witsit. Anyway, so Riverside was right down the street and we went to the um, music prep. Yep. Valley Music. Valley Music. Joe Valley was there mm-hmm. back in those days. Anyway, this is the first time I didn't know what this place was. I walked in there and I went, gee, this is right, you know, around the corner from Howard's house. Look at all this. And it had manuscript and all that. But he went to the counter and he's looking around the counter and he points at something. He says, let me have that. And I've used it almost every day since because I still push the pencil just for ideas and so forth. Here's here's what he wanted me to get. And this this is the one he pointed to that day out of that counter was sitting in the display case. Uh-huh. It's a drafting, it's a drafting ruler, right? Right. There's no there's no anything on here, inches, millimeters, nothing. It's just plain. It's just for making lines. So so I said, Howard, what am I gonna do with this? And he says, <laughs> Let's go back to my place. So he so he had me buy it. I bought it. We went back to his place. He takes up a blank piece of manuscript and he says, Well when you want to make bar lines and is this the right perspective i think for yeah. okay yeah. he said when you want to make bar lines you give four bars per line and you measure them out equal and you make 
bar lines and you do the whole page. And then when you want to make um, ledger lines, use this side. Yeah. And you make, you know, one, two, however many you need. And, and, and immediately, and this is, this is a trade of Howard's. You see the result immediately. Mm-hmm. When oh, yeah. he makes a suggestion or, or shows you something, it goes right in, it goes right into your bag of knowledge yeah. of yeah. how to do things. That was, that was what's so great about him. And, and, um, Jimmy Bruno, when Howard had his column in, in uh, guitar player magazine, Jimmy Bruno made the brilliant comment. He said, Howard's, Howard's columns, it's all stuff you can use. (laughs) And it was, you could use it immediately. So he was really the only, and I met, you know, I met, um, eventually Alveola and Dennis Budimir and Tommy, of course, and all those guys in the, and the, and the, um, Mike Dacey and, Don Peak and Don Peak studied with Howard, all these guys, and um, Howard. Howard was really the the only one that I met. Not to not to say anything bad about anybody. It was just the nature of people and all that. Howard was like an open book, mm-hmm. and and sometimes I one time I said to him, I said, Howard, I got a stupid question, and he said, There are no stupid questions. Real. Sp- just like that. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. And he meant it. He meant it. So, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was so lucky to be one. And, and he had quite a few, he didn't have you know, trying to get a lesson with him was insane because you had to call an answering service. In those days, everybody had answering service. And with him, you'd wait, they put you on hold. So they had to find him, you know? Yeah. I'd be I'd be on hold for ten minutes, and Howard. Some people took his personality as being kind of flaky. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. He had a brilliant mind, and his mind was always going. So, yeah. when you wanted to get on the phone with him, you better cut to the chase real fast, or he's going to be gone. So sometimes I'd be sitting there for fifteen minutes, and finally they'd come on and say, "Go ahead," and I hear Howard. Hi, Mitch. How you doing? Great. And he'd hang up. (laughs) (laughs) And it's only because that's wasn't him being flaky. It was him being, you better tell me what it is you want quickly because I haven't got time. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And then he got, you know, uh, you know, more with Howard too. He um, started GIT. You know, there was the whole kind of movement there collecting all those guitar players. I mean, Perry and I got to study with Joe DiOrio. So like we got and and Will studied with Eshtay. We, you know, so we got kind of a little sampling of what, of what it must've been like to be hanging with all those cats at that time. And this is the seventies now. So you're, you went to CSUN to study and did you study music at at CSUN? Is that, is that right? I was uh, going to study music, but um, my folks suggested, because they knew, you know, they knew from talking to Marvin Lamonic and other, other music people how difficult the business was, and there were no guarantees. So in those days, it, to fall back on, those were, those were the parents' favorite words to tell their kids, you need something to fall back on. Right. So I 
minored in music, but I majored in business administration, which I hated. I remember being in an economics class, and I thought it was some kind of foreign language from another planet because yeah. I just it just didn't compute yeah. or or I couldn't absorb it, and it was like ha. Huh. So yeah, um, I, I and I left I left CSUN, and it was it wasn't called CSUN; it was called Valley State College back then. But I left to go on the road with Sergio Mendez. So they, they he called me up, wow. and it was like by school high world and yeah. i was gone oh man yeah well and this is a great segue too because we'd love to share with the listeners a little bit of a track of of your playing some of your straight ahead playing too and um you know i know we've all got some questions about the studio scene but it seems mm. like too at that point going on the road really getting exposed to the musicians the musician culture at that time and stuff could you sense back here in la too amongst rittenauer and Car larry carlton some of your peers was there a sense of like camaraderie kind of like the guitar night scene today at that time, or were you guys like interacting a little bit and like kind of having like this healthy competition between each other for some of those coveted gigs? That's a great, that's a great question, John. And you know what? The uh, camaraderie before us was huge amongst even going back to George M. Smith. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Bob Bain who, 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 you know, I split the Tonight Show for a while with Bob, and we got to be great friends. He passed a few years ago that I, I miss him so much. Um, all those got all those guitar players, and then in, in Howard, Howard hung out with guitar players all the time. They all, there was, there's been camaraderie through each generation of guitar players. A lot more, boy, I don't think, the word camaraderie, camaraderie exists in in the world of strings. <laughs> String players, you know, it's like they, if they had guns, boy, it would like. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, right. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe it's also because we talk a lot about on the High Action Podcast and like with New West, guitar is just an instrument that sounds good playing with other guitar players. So going and hanging out with other guitarists, then talking gear and talking like all of our heroes um, is just kind of like a pastime for us. So there's kind of that that built into it. Um, but man, it's, it's so he fascinating hearing you talk about that. And that's a great bookmark on the studio scene. Before we get into that, let's just listen to a little bit of a recording you made in 1999, 2000, I think it was with yeah, 1999, 2000. Yeah. And this is it, with it overlapped. Yeah. Carol Kay is on this, right? Carol Kay uh -huh. is playing electric bass who she was the, um, originator of the click what they what what she called the click bass sound with a pick bass players with a pick yeah. and it came about she went to a session and the bass player didn't show up she was a guitar player she was a great guitar player and they asked her they had a bass and they said well we need a bass more and we need a guitar can you play the bass she said sure and she played it with a pick and, and that was it they heard that sound boom yeah. And she loved it because she didn't have to carry a lot of instruments around. Right. And like she, mandolins and banjos and all that stuff. So, yep. uh, yeah. And the, and the other player, with, it's called the Thumbs Up Trio. And Ray Peasy, who is a great woodwind player. And I still, I talk to him. I talk to Carol every now and again. Yeah. And boy, is she a character. Yeah. Um, I, Ray's a character. Pizza Man. That's what, that's what, that's his nickname. 
And not only did he play woodwinds, he was one of the first to play jazz on bassoon, which hmm. Henry Mancini wrote him a piece that they recorded with Ray on bassoon, and he just, yeah. boy, did he nail that. Wow. So he was, and but great player, great player, and we had great times together. Nice, so. man. Well, here's Whims of Chambers, a great blues head, of course, Paul, about Paul Chambers. So here we go. Hey, Mitch. Man, it's been great to uh, be able to listen to these awesome stories you have about growing up in L.A. and getting into music and the legend of Howard Roberts. Uh, what an amazing first guitar lesson that must have been, just to stumble, stumble upon the Warner, I mean, the Universal lot and experience that like that. That's, that's um, amazing. And I know your career, uh, founded in jazz guitar, took shape so much in the studios. Um, mm. I wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, one of your real marquee gigs, which was the Tonight Show with the great Johnny Carson and your tenure in that band. Uh, it must have been an amazing time to be part of a group like that. I mean, not all Tonight Shows are created equal, as we, <laughs> as we are aware, and certainly not all the bands. Um, you know, just being a, a man that was born in 83, I didn't really get a lot of that uh johnny carson but i've gone back and listened especially to some of the music that was on there i've seen like the ed shaughnessy drum battles and oh, right. one of the favorite clips that we used to watch a lot on the road here with new west guitar group is a clip of john mclaughlin coming out uh with a nylon string guitar and just burning over the whole band and i don't even yeah. know how did it. there's no amp i don't know what <laughs> like a mystery to me to this day how it was acoustic. <laughs> yeah, it was the kind of yeah. what a concept. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you just crushed it. Um, so I know you must have seen a lot of incredible music, but can you just talk to us and our listeners about what the experience was like, what the day to day was like, what your sort of takeaway all these years later is? Well, that was that was a really monumental experience, and and I want to preface preface it by because some of the, some of the people listening 
need to understand what you need to find out about yourself mm. in these instances. And what happened was, and remember I, I mentioned about going on the road with Sergio Mendez, right? Oh. And I left college. I went on the road and that was like all of a sudden I'm, we're in these huge venues every night. We went to Japan. We went to the East Coast first, I think. But then we went on this month-long tour of Japan where I think in 28 days there were, there were like 26 concerts. Wow. And I'll tell you, you know what I learned about myself that I had no clue um, was playing the same set every night with a group like that where and and for me i found out that i don't like having to play worry about playing a certain solo at exactly the right place every night the same thing or the part or a fill the same fill every night because what i found out was that eventually after so many times my mind starts to wander and i'm going to mess up i knew that that would happen at some point that's just the way i'm turned out to be wired that i didn't know and until i was in that, that experience okay so so from being exposed to the studio world from howard i realized boy you know i could i could do that you walk in you play the music you never play it again when you walk out and i could be home for dinner there you go and i thought hmm that i think that's more for me <laughs> okay so I made a choice, and then I started moving that direction. Lo and behold, Ed Shaughnessy, the drummer, calls me on the phone and says um, about, and, and most of it was traveling with Doc Severinsen, who was the leader. He was a trumpet player leader. Uh, he had a group that went out on the weekends. So the deal was he two, two nights a week on The Tonight Show and go out with Doc on the weekends. And I, I great. Boy, a steady gig, even two nights a week on The Tonight Show, a steady gig, musician. And I'm thinking, oh, this will impress my parents, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it started out like that. And the whole thing of live TV, which um, it, it, it exists a little bit now, but, you know, like the Academy Awards and Grammys and so forth. But... Live TV as a weekly thing hardly exists anymore. And uh, being on that show, and I was the youngest guy. Now I'm always the older, oldest guy now. Now, <laughs> you know, and Jim Huart, the bass player, who used to play with Joe Pass, he dubbed he dubbed me back then much older. That was my nickname. <laughs> so he called me Yo Much. You know, Hey Much. Hi, Dennis Budimir. Yo Much. How you doing? Jay Graydon. Jay Graydon. Hey man, hey, it's much older. Here's much older. So now I now I tell everybody, I tell them, I said, okay, it became it came true. I'm much older now. Now now call me much younger and make that come true. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, the 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 Tonight Show was an experience that was amazing because it was live. We got we went in it. Rehearsal at 3.15. It was an hour and a half when I started. Um, do a rehearsal of a new band number, maybe, that they played on the on the commercials. or And 
the act who was going to come in, whatever the musical act was, they'd come in and we'd rehearse the tunes, make sure the charts were right, we're playing it right, and and the camera people were getting their spots. They were spotting the cameras and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then, and it would be at 5.15, be on, be on the stage, ready to go, and we'd play a number, a band number, and then Ed McMahon would come out and do a little intro to the audience, and then blammo, show starts, and Carson came out for the monologue. And I, I, I can speak, because I wasn't there every night. Like I said, I was there basically Mondays and Fridays. That's, those were my nights. Okay, all right. And, and seeing Carson do what he did every night, even the, and I wasn't there every night. Bob, Bob Bain would say the same thing. Carson was the best to oh, me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he just, he was so good. Not only his monologues were always great, even on a bad night, he made, he made them work. And his interviewing style was absolutely amongst the best I've ever witnessed. He was so respectful, and he did his homework. And so... Yeah, it was it was a great experience for me, and yeah, uh, I, I must have been you know yeah. like a drummer too, right? So he must have had a connection to the band. He must have really loved what you guys were doing, and you must have just seen and been involved with so many incredible guests that came through. Because I'm sure that he supported a lot of the music that you guys like to play and enjoy to play. So, do you have any kind of guest artist stories that really come to mind? People that it really you know blew you away that you got to play with on the show well i'll tell you one you get a kick out of this okay and it, and it wasn't a it wasn't a um player all right it was i'm gonna say his name and he, i, I want to see nicholas slaninsky like the i have the book over here the slaninsky yeah that book yeah that book yeah whoa amazing he was a guest on carson so awesome. I was I was on the you know and how did I find out when Ed McMahon read the list of guests coming on, the last name of the guest before they went to commercial and Nicholas Slanimsky and I'm going what he's going to take he's going to play a tetrahedral, yeah <laughs> scale with a whole note and a sesquitone and a yeah <laughs> oh, you, you know if you've been in that book you go holy smokes you know so I waited with bated breath. Because he, he was the last guest, so he came on right before the end of the show. Wow. And guess what? He, he, I was wondering the whole time, what's he going to do? He came out. He was so funny that he had Carson absolutely in stitches. He was one of the funniest guys I've ever seen in my life. And I'm sitting there going, this guy wrote that book? <laughs> it, must have driven him, it must have driven him loony. That's why he's this way. He's, That's so funny. For, for he's the, writing out all these scales and and melodic patterns, and he, he just went went wacky. You know. I'll just clarify for the listeners. Nicholas Slominski wrote a book, The Thesaurus of Scales and Melodic Patterns, that's like a legendary book for a lot of jazz musicians trying to kind of expand the language of what we play, and, and really any musician, but it's become has this sort of cult following in the jazz community and has for decades. So that's an amazing one. I can't believe, I didn't think you were going to say Nicholas Siminski. I thought maybe you'd say, you know, I don't know, Elton John or something crazy like that, you know, but that's, that's pretty cool. And as, you know, performing with 
there were so many that and, and pick for me picking a favorite anything like somebody so who's your absolute favorite guitar player there is no absolute favorite guitar player the list is humongous there's there's there can't be just one great guitar player there's so many different styles how could there be one there's a lot yeah because the world of guitar is huge and something you were talking about earlier um about the camaraderie between guitar players i think it's it's uh, impossible to really emphasize how crucial that is to this community and and also um just to recognize how wonderful that is in los angeles specifically uh you know i lived in la for uh gosh nine years about mm -hmm. and uh, I really experienced that, you know, especially through John Pisano and his Guitar Night and all these teachers. You talked about Howard Roberts, where we had people like Joe DiOrio and Ron Esche that were just so kind and, and uh, definitely an open book in a way of trying to share and pass down the knowledge. I mean, this is all sort of pre-social media, so you didn't really have the ability just to go Google what you're trying to find out about. You, know, you had to have a relationship and a rapport with uh, you know the elder people in the community to kind of pass down the music. And that camaraderie really exists in a wonderful way in Los Angeles, I've always felt. Having moved to New York, mm. experienced the guitar community out here a little bit, uh, there definitely is that camaraderie, but it's a little bit harder to kind of break through to it with people, you know, because there's just so many players out here and people have a little bit more of a hard edge. But I'd love to pass it over to Will here. Uh, speaking of great, you know, camaraderie between guitar players, uh, he's hopefully experienced that with us joining the New West Guitar Group as the youngest member. I've experienced uh, a few things in uh, in the New West Guitar Group, but that's for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Enough, Will? Did we make you feel like camaraderie in the group? Um. Define come no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And Mitch, man, it's it's great to to hear these stories and and to hear you. I love that. I love that clip, man. I kind of just want to, if you don't mind, really dig into like things that you do functioning in a studio session and adapting, especially rhythm guitar playing. Mm. You know that what we as an ensemble think a lot about, um, but your concept of, and I'm not sure how much acoustic guitar stuff, you, you know, you, you've necessarily done studio wise. I know certainly a lot of electric, but talk about your approach to, to intuitively hearing what the two needs as far as rhythm, guitar playing, tone, articulation, et cetera. Okay. All, all good questions, Will. And, and let me just say about rhythm guitar, it's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. yeah, and and finding the pocket and staying in the pocket, that's that's a fundamental. That's something that is first and foremost in my psyche when I'm playing. Okay, um, acoustic guitar. Yeah, I played acoustic guitar every day, most on every session. A lot there was acoustic guitar because you know when I when I started doing mainstream studio work and i started actually in the year that i met howard i got uh one of my um high school friends he was a singer and he he had connections to gold star which was one of the primary uh record studios in town it was like united western and um, um and gold star that's where Phil Spector worked. That's where 
they all worked. Howard was there all the time. And um, I, I, got, I got hooked up with my friend from high school, and um, we went in periodically, and we were making, and you guys, I don't know if you guys even know what this is, eight-track cartridges. You know what that is? I, <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. big. Yeah, it was like, it was like pre-tape cassettes <laughs> in your car. And the cartridges, you know, they look like VHS video cartridges almost. And, and you carried them around. We were doing sound-alikes of Top 40. Periodically, yeah. we'd go in, and I had, back then, I had a 57 Telecaster, Mm. And and my jazz guitar, and that's what I brought in. Mm. And um, we, I had to mimic all these sounds off the hit records. Right. And Stan Ross was our engineer, who was a co-owner of Gold Star. He was so helpful to me in mic placement, amp settings, et cetera, et cetera. I got a, it was like recording 101 in, in the real world. Yeah. It was, oh, it was so wonderful so um doing doing sessions and acoustic and acoustic here's another thing i'm left-handed primarily and my father being a doctor told me early on he said let me tell you something so there's very few totally left-handed people in the world and you can go and poll if you see somebody using their left hand ask them if they do everything left-handed and i didn't do everything left-handed I've, I've always played guitar right-handed. If you put a left-handed guitar in my lap, I'd be hopeless. Mm -hmm. But saying that, my right hand, being predominantly left-handed, playing finger style. I, I studied classical guitar for a while, and I came to realize that this was a clutch, mm -hmm. being my not-strong hand. Right. Right? Okay, so... When I started in the 70s, singer-songwriters were coming around. Carol King's album had come out. Jackson Brown was, was, was out. Linda Ronstadt. There was a lot of these artists that I was working with where I had to play finger-picking acoustic guitar, mm -hmm. and I couldn't do it with my fingers. Wow. Yeah. Okay? So what happens? Well, you, you, you say to yourself, self... You either got to figure out a way to pull this off, or that's going to be it. You, you're going to, you, they're not going to call you because mm -hmm. they won't, they want to call you for anything. Right. They want to call you for, they don't want to know what your specialties are. There are specialty guitar players in pop, mm -hmm. primarily, um, who specialize, they only play electric. Or et cetera, et cetera, but as a and 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 Howard, you know what he used to call uh, what we do. You're an industrial guitar player. It's like calling a good plumber. Yeah, <laughs> and, nice. and he's right in a sense. And I, at first, I went, "What?" You know, but he he was right in a sense. But anyway, so um, what what did I do? Well, um, I figured out that if I used a pick and two fingers and practice a little bit, I found out I could finger pick. I could use a pick and two fingers and pretty much do whatever I want. I needed to do. I and, 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 and I proudly say nobody's ever sent me home because I couldn't do something. That's, okay. that's encouraging to me. I, I do the same thing. I don't have 
right hand finger technique. Um, really, I mean, and I don't, I don't have the nails and I don't, I just yeah. wasn't trying with that. So I, I'm right there with you. That's so, I, that's actually really nice to hear that. Cause I definitely do the pick and the, and the two fingers for sure. And, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to, uh, say to people is don't give up, don't give up, find a way to make it work. It right. doesn't have to. It doesn't have to look right or anything. But if it sounds right, do it because you'll save yourself a lot of aggravation. And and um, yeah. And when I when I was doing kind of Chet Atkins kind of mm. um, two beat, you know, with the bass and all that, trying to play it like he did, it's impossible because I'm only using two fingers. Right. 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 But I figured out how to do it the way I did it, and that was the key. Yeah. yeah, figure out a way that you can do something, not the not the way somebody else does something. Like try to trying to be another Tommy Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. give, give me a break. That's not going to happen. Right. right. Not going to happen. That's wonderful. Okay. Look. So, uh, and and as far as rhythm guitar, boy, feel feel. No matter what. Oh, feel and sound. The first thing. Here's something I've, I I I. I found real fast was, and you guys all know this, if you have the greatest lick in whatever style, but it's not the right sound. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. And Howard said this same word all the time. You're not believable. Mm -hmm. You want to be believable. You want to make them believe, boy, you're the best doing this. Okay. So if you take, maybe a not so great lick with the correct sound will work better than the greatest lick in the world with the wrong sound. Yeah. It's just the way, way it is. So, so, and, and this came from doing those sound alikes too, because mm -hmm. if I played the licks on the record without the right sound and in the sixties, I have to say the studio instrument, the studio guitar of choice in the '60s, Telecaster. Yeah, mm. yeah, Tellys are great. Yeah, Tellys are great. Now diving into that, which pickup did you use the most? Oh, the, the the bridge pickup. Okay, okay. Oh, the bridge pickup. My '57 Telly, the the neck pickup was pretty much useless. It had no power, and it was useless. Yeah. So pretty much in in at that time, everything you were playing was was the treble pickup, was the bridge pickup, to get that bright. It's so sound. nice. I did know. I did know that the and and you can ask the telly players back then and now. Um, the one of the keys is to back the tone control off a little bit. Mm -hmm. You can ask Vince Gill about that. Yeah. Ah. That's the first thing he'll do. He'll back the. And it just takes the upper upper end of that ping out, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not so biting. You know what I'm saying? There's something really nice about three, um, like three switch guitars or two pickup guitars because you can just focus. Um, I want to use the the term that that Rodney Jones used. It's like on the guitar itself, you can go deep rather than go wide. I've been using a Strat for a lot of studio pop stuff lately, and I love that guitar, but like the tonal variety is kind of just overwhelming. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. Even when you get a handle on it, it's kind of like, Oh God, 
like there's like five different combinations and the tone knob is super sensitive, but like with a Tele or a Les Paul or a 175, it's like you've got three pickups and volume and tone. And I'm, yeah, that's really interesting. But the bridge pickup, that that's a little unexpected. I, I thought you might've said the middle, middle selector. Oh, with, with, with the two pickups on. Yeah. I, I use that a little bit, but you know, we're talking about, um, 1966, yeah. yeah, 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 right. And, right. and most of the most of the uh, tele, Telecaster parts, they were playing that guitar. That was a guitar of choice because of that bridge pickup sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot don't and don't forget. And, and, and Dennis Budimir had a great line about um, his house, and he said, "He said, uh, yeah, it's the house that Backbeat built because he's he played so many <laughs> two and four chicks right yeah man um one what really predominant back then yeah, yeah sure right the upbeats um yeah. before john takes it over again um just for our listeners and for our insight across the decades and across the genres if you were to give advice to someone wanting to really get into studio playing or just having an axe that's versatile I, I hate to limit it to only one, but like, uh, and you may have already answered this question, but what guitar would you recommend someone get to get a, a good baseline across all genres and situations? Well, you know, picking one again is yeah. difficult. Yeah. I, I actually, in the scheme of things, if you can think of the basic electric guitar tones that we all know, I, I don't think realistically there's one instrument right. that'll get. Let's make it three then. I mean, I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, for me, and I, I have to say, the Les Pauls are not my favorite guitars. Okay, they're kind of small and and they're kind of clunky to me. They they dig into my mm-hmm. their chest here, yeah, and they're a little small for me. So I would I would say. A three thirty-five, a Tele, Mm -hmm. and a Strat. Oh, okay. So two Fenders and a Gibson. Yeah, yeah. That's quite similar to Lee's answer too. You, you know, yeah. Yeah, Lee. Lee and I we kind of come from the same mold a little bit, and um, you know, he had he still has his L five, and. and the three thirty five, which he got on, he got them both out of the fire in his house, which was, boy, I'm so happy for that. You know, as far I don't, I don't, as far as I recollect, I don't think he's ever owned a telly. Right? Maybe yeah. telly. I I don't see him with a telly. Doesn't match what he does. But the thing, the thing with doing session work, this is another thing. There's an old saying: uh, producers hear with their eyes. There's instances when on a 335, and I play basically 355s because I like I like ebony better than I like rosewood on electrics, pretty much. So I so I gravitated to the mono 355. I can I can simulate the the bridge pickup and get pretty close to a a, a tele sound, but see that if the producer sees that then then I'm, then that's it and i can tell you a story about you know this howard roberts guitar mm-hmm. and um 
that Howard wanted this guitar, by the way. Oh, boy. And that's another story. But this guitar, you know, it's got the oval sound hole. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters is an actress, singer. I did some, several albums with her. And the, and the producer, Brooks Arthur, who's a real character, great guy, but he's a real character. He would, he would be like, you know, take 47. And, he, and his favorite word was delicious. So at the end of take 47, you know, the rhythm section, and he'd say, oh, guys, oh, guys, that was just delicious. Can I just have one more? <laughs> and, <laughs> but wow. he called He called me up and he said, yeah, you know that session with Bernadette we're doing Monday? said, bring, bring an F-hole guitar, F-hole electric guitar. I said, okay. So we get to the, we do the session. He can't see me. I'm in the back behind a baffle. He can't see me. He's in the booth. And I go in to listen to the playback. He said, oh, Mitch, that guitar just sounds fantastic. I just love the sound of that guitar. I said, thank you, Brooks. I'm glad I, I'm glad I had one to bring with me, you know. So so, so the end of the date, I didn't get it put in the case fast enough. He came walking back to you know, say goodbye to everybody, and say, and he saw me putting the guitar, getting ready to put it in the gig bag, and he goes over and he looks at it, and he says, Mitch, the next time I ask you to bring an F-hole guitar, bring an F-hole guitar, and and I was not going to go into a dissertation Yeah, yeah. about, you know, well, it's the top, it's a carved top, the sound hole is secondary. <laughs> Producers here with their eyes, and you can't argue with them. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> so, Man, thank you for that. That's amazing. You know, you kind of forget at this time we're talking about there wasn't a lot of gear out there. There was Gibsons, Fenders, you know, Harmony, Silvertone, some other stuff too. Um, um, the most right, maybe if you're playing a baritone, but amplifiers too were kind of still primitive. Guys were using Fenders, and I know you worked with Ron Benson on developing some amps with Howard, and those are legendary amplifiers. I'm curious, talking a little bit about that, did you have to learn as a studio guy a lot about like how amps work? To go to a guy like Paul Rivera with your deluxe and say, hey, I need this modified because I need more treble for the kinds of guitar parts I'm playing. Because I know Paul also modified a lot of amps for you in Rittenauer in those days, right? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting about sound because um, growing up listening to jazz, and you know, my favorite players were Barney and Jim Hall and Tal, you know, the usual suspects, Kenny Burrell. But then I heard Howard, and I went, "What? What's going on? Why does his guitar sound so much better and present?" And you, and you know what it was? Mid range. Howard was a studio player. He was predominantly playing the Telecaster when I met him, which he called "Give me my plank." <laughs> it was the plank. <laughs> the plank. <laughs> Walk the plank. But you know, he he and Bob Bain. Bob yeah. Bain. They all were playing tellies. When you heard movie scores, well, there's one with Bob. There's a great film with Jimmy Jimmy Stewart, um, Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. Bob plays the main title, and he's playing it on his telly. You'll swear he's playing a jazz box, you know. Uh-uh, he's playing his telly. Um, Howard's on it. Barney's on it on that movie. Um Al Hendrickson, 
anyway, but Bob plays the main title, and it's just a beautiful sound. Um, but the um, what was I going to say was it's this, the mid range. So as we all know, I mean, you know, rock and roll players knew about mid range before the jazzers, but I, 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 the way I hear the guitar clear, uh, clean sound. And I'm, I'm of the persuasion. I think, I think the general public now, the bulk of the general public, when they think of a guitar sound, it's, it's distorted or overdrive. Mm -hmm. They don't think, and oh, I'll tell you, kid, do I have time to tell one story? I was in, I was in Hollywood guitar center one time. So there was a guy and he wasn't particularly busy in this one room. And there was a guy who was in his probably forties and he was playing uh, like an Ibanez, a uh, hollow body through a fender amp. And he was playing, he was sounding, you know, he was playing some nice, uh, clean jazz oriented, um, uh, style. And there were these two young guys nearby and they were kind of whispering to each other and, they were they were kind of listening to him and they had this curious look on their face. So finally, and I said, I said, so I I, I kind of knew what was going to happen. I said, I gotta, I gotta witness this. So I kind of hung out. They gravitated over to him and they 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 were looking at the amp, looking at him. Finally they said, Hey, mister, what's wrong with that amp? Oh man. Because it was it was a clean sound and they just it's not working they, right. They couldn't they didn't understand it at all. So, and this was a long time ago. This is not recently. This is years ago. And come now, I really think that most people, their idea of an electric guitar tone is overdrive distorted, not clean. So our job going forward is to reintroduce them to what a good, clean guitar can sound like. Clank. And Howard knew it. I we talked about it. He knew about the mid range, and he knew how to get it from amps that didn't have a mid range control. Right. Because the Bensons didn't, the Fenders didn't, the Gibson. He had a Gibson. He didn't have a Fender before the Benson. He had a Gibson GA19, which was the first Gibson amp to have reverb. Had reverb and tremolo. Oh. And it was great for the studio, but when you try to get a jazz sound wouldn't do it so so he and ronnie worked it out so they could have both you know and that that's that's how that came about but boy the mid-range is important for everybody whether you're playing clean or distorted and howard i i realized that howard learned that doing session work yeah, in order to get the right sound for things. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that's coming back a little bit too. You hear sometimes more clean electric guitar sounds these days in pop music and certain things, but um, it is fascinating looking back on so many years of guitar now, all the ways it's been recorded. Our listeners mm -hmm. should hear you on albums like, aren't you on Lionel Richie all night long? You're playing guitar on that, right? No, that's Tim May. I'm playing on Stuck on You, and I'm playing... I'm playing acoustic. Okay. And and um, Love Lifts Us Up Where We Belong from Officer and a Gentleman? Yes. Okay. So we can hear you on tracks like that. And it's just so cool to hear you talk about your process, how you met these guys. And I hope the listeners can go check out. So we should all go check out some Howard Roberts today. And you wrote a book of Howard Roberts transcriptions that's available still, correct? Yes. 
through Mel Bay. Oh, they can go find that on Mel Bay's website. Yeah, Mel. Yeah, it's or Amazon or cool. The, the, the usual suspects. Got it. Well, and yeah. so, and then our last question, just to wrap up here, as you mentioned earlier. So, how high is your action these days on your three fifty five that you play? <laughs> um, how high is it? Well, I'll show it to you. All right, let's see. Uh, you you be the judge, but I but I think I know what you'll say. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.